the Arena Football Hall of Fame has returned, and we want you to become a part of the family. Introducing the Arena Football Hall of Fame Patreon. Whether an all-star or a Hall of Famer, our reasonably priced tiers each have their own exclusive perks. Early access to the AFL Rewind podcast, honorary selection committee member, and much more. Help us build a Hall of Fame we'll all be proud of. Head to patreon.com slash AF Hall of Fame to join. Welcome to AFL Rewind, a look back at all things arena football, sponsored by Phenom Elite. I'm your host, Tim Capper. Well, during this series of historical podcasts, we've been able to speak with, you know, with many people from across the league. But I find that the stories that we usually get from the owner's point of view uh, give a little bit more insight to a team than, say, would from a coach or a player or uh, an assistant coach. Uh, that's why having another owner on for this episode is such a treat. If it wasn't for this gentleman deciding to get into the uh, the ownership of an Arena Football League team, we never would have had one of the most uh, exciting rivalries in Arena Football League history, the war on I-4. This episode, we're going to be speaking with Bob Grease. Um, we get to hear about how he not only bought the Pittsburgh Gladiators, almost folded the gladiators and then uh, then moved the team and they became what we now know as the very historical Tampa Bay Storm. So I hope you enjoy this. There's a lot of insider information on this that I had never heard, and I think that's the point that we're just trying to get across uh, with these podcasts. If you learn one new thing from within the Arena Football League, uh, we've, we've done our job. So here we go, talking with Bob Grease. On this episode of the podcast, we have a gentleman who was the owner of, wow, I think probably three of the best-known names in the Arena Football League. We want to hear about his full history uh, within the league itself. On the line with us now, we have the former owner of the Pittsburgh Gladiators, Tampa Bay Storm, and the Orlando Predators, Mr. Bob Grease. Hey, Bob, thanks for joining us. Well, my my, my pleasure. Uh, it's uh, it's fun to you know to share some great memories from the past. Um, for those who don't know your name, I do know that your family was very well involved within the Cleveland Browns itself. But for you in particular, what what caught you on to uh, owning an Arena Football League team? Well, my family first got involved with the Cleveland Rams back in 1936, mm-hmm. and uh, that became the Browns, and that lasted for a period of 60 years, and it was certainly great to grow up in that. Um, I first got involved because I was living in New York in in 1990. I saw something in uh, USA Today um, said arena football teams could be bought for $125,000. I didn't really know much, if anything, about arena football. Um, I thought that was something that I could afford. Little did I know that would become a lot more expensive. Uh, once I owned the team, mm-hmm. um, but that's how I first got started. I called. They were reformulating the league back then after kind of a barnstorming year in 1990, um, and I simply said, well, what should I do? Where should I go? And someone said, well, you may want to go to Pittsburgh, and um, I was living in New York at the time, mm-hmm. 
And so I got involved originally with the Gladiators, um, and it was very short-lived because we played at that time only an eight-game season. Right. Um, I would go back and forth from New York. Um, I remember, actually, after the second game, and we were 0-2, I was planning to fold my team after the third game, and at halftime I was thinking about my speech of what I was going to say, and I was going to finish and leave Pittsburgh and go back to New York, and then um, we came back and won the game, and then in the excitement of winning, I thought, well, I can't really fold it now. <laughs> <laughs> and I managed to get through the season. Um, lost a ton of money, so it became a lot more expensive than my original investment. Yeah. And uh, and that's how it all started. Now, coming from a family that had, had you know, had, had owned an NFL franchise, you I mean, had you known that there were risks when it came to possibly losing a lot more money than you originally put in, or was it... Based on the information that uh, you know that uh, Jim Foster may have given you initially about the about the team and the league. Well, first of all, there's no correlation between being involved with the Browns and anything to do with arena football. Okay. Uh, first, our involvement with the Browns, we were we were minority passive owners. Okay. You know, I was a young kid. I was working. Um, um, you can't even compare the two in the same sentence. Okay. <laughs> um, I probably was very naive with any business I should have anticipated, um, but the, the performers originally that Jim put together, you know, didn't hold true for anyone, mm-hmm. and uh, they were all too rosy, and we all lost a lot more money. And I can't remember if it was in 90 or the next year in 91 when I moved to Tampa, but I think it was 90, but I ended up, in fact, it was 90. We had the Washington franchise fold before they played the first game, so the remaining five owners had to pick up a piece of that, and then the Denver team folded halfway through the season, so we had to pick up a piece of that. Mm, So by the time the first season ended, there were... Only four of us as owners, and we all owned a piece of three different teams. Right, right, and that, and unfortunately, that seemed to be the the case a, a lot within the Arena Football League, even through to its, you know, all the way through to, to 2019 when the when the league uh, filed for bankruptcy. Um, they became official on April 25th, 1990, that you bought the Gladiators. Um, did you like the name? Did you like the color scheme? Because we'll get into you know you're renaming the team uh, when you move it to Tampa, but. Were you okay with with the uh, with your identity that you had at that time, or did it matter? Oh, I, I didn't know anything about it, and I wasn't even involved. I asked. I was living in New York, working, and I had an arrangement with the Pittsburgh Arena, mm-hmm. and their marketing people kind of gave me the advice, and I was busy working in New York, and okay. so I pretty much just followed whatever they said, and I fly back and forth, and. Um, it, it it didn't turn out the way we wanted, either on the field or off. And so the following season, when I moved it to Tampa, then I did get involved in everything. Kind of, uh, I'd sold my business at the end of that year, mm-hmm. and I got involved in everything. Uh, and of course, we had we had a you know much different experience and and great success in in Tampa Bay for sure now it, it now it was reported in the paper in 1990 that i i'm guessing that you were trying to bring in 
some local flair to, to try to get people into the stands. And there was a report that you actually tried to sign Major Harris in 1990 to be your quarterback. Um, it stated that you, at that time, it, it, he wasn't sure if he wanted to. He had already signed with the BC Lions of the Canadian Football League. And it, it was reported that you offered him approximately the same that he was going to get was about 100K. And also a percentage of the gate receipts. Was was that true, Bob? I don't remember that, to be honest. <laughs> In fact, I, um, I I think we made some inquiry. You're now you're asking about something 30 years ago. I know. <laughs> I think we might have made an inquiry to his agent. Okay. But I don't even remember anybody seriously responding to it. So... Um, I think it was more kind of fluff than right. than anything else. Okay, and, and I think it's pretty ironic too that you tried to bring him in 1990, and then he ends up playing for the Cleveland Thunderbolts in 1991 and beyond. So, I thought that was pretty ironic. Um, uh, also, in in October of 1990, uh, it was reported initially that uh, the, you were going to be moving the Gladiators to Tampa Bay. You had lost approximately. They said around $400,000 in 1990, and you're going to be playing in the Suncoast Dome. Um, I do know, according to what it said here, that at the time when it was initially reported, uh, you were in Paris along with the rest of the league at the European exhibitions. Is that correct? Well, that is correct you know, within the ballpark of what I lost that first year. Mm-hmm. As I said, like 400 in Pittsburgh, and then, of course, we lost our little share of Washington and right. Denver that added insult injury. Uh, I did go over at some point, I couldn't have told you when, to Paris okay. to watch the, the exhibition that they were putting on there. Um, uh, so I remember that. I don't remember exactly when, but, but that sounds right. Okay. Yeah, because I think it was mentioned in the newspaper that they wanted a quote from you. So you, you actually had to, when it was initially reported, they they came to you for a quote, and that's they had mentioned that that's where you had been with the uh, I guess uh, with the rest of the league and promoting the the league overseas. Um, uh, it became official on November twentieth, nineteen ninety, uh, that you were going to be moving the team to the Suncoast Dome. Um, what were your initial thoughts, Bob, when it came to seeing how cavernous the Suncoast Dome was in Tampa? And did you think that uh, that arena football, considering how small the field is, was going to work there? Well, I looked at three cities. Um, I looked at Charlotte, Atlanta, and Tampa. Mm-hmm. Um, looked at all of them objectively. Um, didn't know much about any of them. Um, um, I always saw the, the you know the Suncoast Dome now today Tropicana Field. Yeah. Um, I, I wasn't really worried about the size thing because we had you know put the field in and and. Uh, figured out how to kind of section off part of the stadium. Um, but what was fantastic was I was the only tenant in there. So it was great. There wasn't a baseball team. There wasn't a hockey team. Um, so we had the whole building to ourselves. We were able to set up our field. We practiced in there every single day, which, you know, helped versus other people that couldn't always practice in their building. And, um, so it was a it was a great base. Uh, hockey came I think in '92, so we had to kind of juggle a few things there. Baseball never came until after we left, or after I sold the team in '94. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I loved it, and it was a it was a fantastic experience. And you know, St. Petersburg 
welcomed us with with open arms. Was that was that the 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 the, the final nail that allowed you to say, you know, what, I'm going to Tampa and not to those other two cities? Yeah, I mean, I think I was taking a flyer wherever I went. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I was very scared of baseball. I have to say, part of the negative experience in Pittsburgh was I didn't appreciate what it was like to compete against a baseball team. And, um, you know, when you're a pro team and you have all your season ticket sales booked, you don't care if it rains or what the competition is. Your money's in the bank. Right. When you were arena football and you had no money in the bank and you only had four or five or six potential dates, everything was critical. And um, I remember uh, getting clobbered when we had some games when when the Pirates played and thinking, wherever I go, um, I don't want to deal with baseball. So Atlanta really got ruled out because of that. Charlotte and Tampa were fine. And, uh, and, but Tampa Bay really opened us with, with open arms and were always great to us, you know, for all four of those years I was involved. So it was baseball and not drawing that well in Pittsburgh, which is really the catalyst to you deciding to move the team. Yeah, I, I wanted to stay away from baseball, I, I have to say. And, yeah. and Tampa Bay, it, you know, it worked out well. Um, and I caught Tampa Bay at the right time when the Bucks were not very good or, or thought about. So, you know, we, we, we got a lot of magic in the bottle, and I was a really good marketer. So, you know, a lot of a lot of good and fun things happened. And, of course, we won championships mm-hmm. in, you know, two of those four years. Yeah. Um, yeah there's an, you had run a Name the Team contest. It was initially launched on February 8th of 91. Um, they are officially named, renamed the Storm on March 12th, 1991. One, it was mentioned there that... Um, that if you could have named the team the Brawlers, you would have done so, because there were 60-some-odd names or so, I think, that were suggested within the Name the Team contest. And you originally wanted to go with Black and Red. I mean, that's, at least that's what it stated. It, it, is, were you okay with, with the name that, it's, that you came up with in the end, based off of location and, and colors and stuff like that? Because as you said at the beginning, you became very involved in, in what the, the team was going to be going forward. I don't ever remember considering it the brawlers ever to be honest now again this is 30 years ago so i won't dispute if i (laughs) I said something it would have been it would have been truthful but i don't ever remember that um um and the storm you know seemed like it was a perfect name i think i think bill boggs who worked at the suncoast dome always kidded me that he was the one that came up and recommended the name and okay that that may well be but um i don't remember the history on that yeah. but this you know the storm was turned out to be a terrific name yeah. do you remember just off the top of your head if you do you remember any of the other team names that had been suggested no, no? okay no no i really don't because because i will admit for it for as long as i've known the league it's it's very strange to call the team in tampa anything but the tampa bay storm so yeah um yeah. What was your what was your before we get actually on the field? What was your initial thought of the league's, um, uh, I guess, partnership with Zubaz in 1991? I mean, you have a technically a brand new team, and then you have to wear these unique jerseys and uniforms. Uh, I mean, yes, they were being given to you because it was a league sponsor, I guess. But what what did, had you had you wished that you had been able to go with a traditional type of 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 uniforms, or were you okay with the Zubaz in 91? 
No, I loved the idea from the start, and I was the only owner of, um, I think we had eight teams that year. I guess we added, forget who we added, but we got to eight that year in 91. I was the only one that would wear the full Zubas uniform. There were like two variations, um, and uh, maybe it had to do with the pants. Okay. um, That, that you know, one was the full Zubas, like like those sweatpants were, yes. and other people wanted to wear it just as a stripe. I said to the owners, when they'd say, oh, you know, this doesn't look like the NFL, I said, this is silly. We aren't the NFL. We're never going to be the NFL. We need our own identity. So I loved it from the start, and and I I often tell people, one of the greatest moments we ever had was in 1993. We were playing Miami, mm-hmm. and at halftime, our coach, Larry Kaharick, decided he was going to switch. I don't know even know how he found, because we were no <laughs> longer wearing them. But we had the entire team switch into the Zubas uniforms, and when they came out at halftime wearing them, the fans um, went into a standing ovation like I had never seen before in wow. all the years. Wow! And um, I, I remember that, and um, and so I loved them. I still have a few of them remaining, um, and they were fantastic. Yeah, even so, I don't know if you know that the for the 25th anniversary of the Tampa Bay Storm, and it, it just happened to fall on the 3,000th game in league history. They recreated uh, their, those Zubaz uniforms and happened to wear them in their opening game versus the Orlando Predators. So it was it was a sight to oh, see for sure. I didn't know that, but yeah. that, that's great to know. Yeah. Um, what, what were your thoughts on on the on your head coaching that first year? Originally, you had had you know the, the head coach for and GM four for Pittsburgh, but you know there was talk that he wasn't he most likely was going to stay in Pittsburgh when the team left. Um, what made you decide on Frank Cahersey uh, as your head coach? Well, when I came to Tampa and I asked people for kind of some advice, and everybody also thought that uh, to some degree coaches with local identity helped. I, I don't think it really did. But mm-hmm. Fran was recommended because he had coached about 20 years before at the University of Tampa, and he'd been very, very successful at the University of Tampa. Um, but but to be very honest, and Fran was a really good guy, but um, Larry Kaharick did the majority of the work, okay. and Fran was a little bit more of a kind of a figurehead, um, and it was surprising, and it didn't go over really well, but the morning after we won the championship in Detroit, I met with Fran and uh, told him I was, I was, you know, replacing him, and I was making Larry the head coach because, um, I mean, I just realized, you know, Larry had done the majority of the work, the majority of the recruiting. Um, uh, Larry was really an active, active coach. And um, if I was going to go forward and continue to be successful, I, I needed Larry as our head coach. Okay. So, um, so Fran was a really good guy, but uh, then I... I replaced him with Larry, and Larry remained the coach for the my my remaining three years. Yeah, and for those who don't know, I think uh, Larry was there uh, was your OC that year. Is that correct? Yes, in ninety one. Yeah, ninety one. Yeah. Uh, and now I, I just ask as a as an aside, when it comes to being a sports fan and stuff like that, Bob, what, what's it uh, what's it like when you know that you win a head coach of the year, which Fran did, and then you, and then he doesn't come back for your for your 
favorite team that next year. Is it is it awkward being that, or is it? It was it, at the time it was just business. He he says you said Larry seemed to be the brains and so what behind the team. It, there was nothing against it. He just happened to win the the head coach of the year that year. Well, it's always tough, and um, you know, but the reality simply was that um uh, you know Larry was into this 24/7 and just doing unbelievable work and he'd been in Canada so he knew players from everywhere mm-hmm. you know and Fran saw this kind of more as a I don't know maybe maybe a fun thing and he he wasn't really you know he didn't really want to roll up his sleeves and right. and get into the nitty-gritty and um and I knew otherwise I would I would lose Larry. So um um so I I had to make that decision. It wasn't easy being a you know, a thirty year old kid. Um uh it was tough. You know, Fran was, was uh you know, older than me and well respected, but right. you know, I made uh I made a decision and and obviously it um it was a good decision because yeah. we we had great success with, with Larry continuing for sure and now are you were you the type of owner who wanted to deal with the type of players that you were going to be getting because obviously you picked up a a a huge when it came to jay gruden being your your quarterback that year and everybody in football now knows the name jay gruden what he's done um are are you the type of hands-on owner or did you let your your coaching staff just and gm just deal with that well i um was very involved um in, in doing all of the marketing um, that was the primary thing to sell tickets and mm-hmm. do advertising and sell sponsorships. Um, I never got involved in the football side of it. Like I don't think I ever sat there and watched a practice. Okay. I might have gone in for ten or fifteen minutes, um, but I, you know, I didn't get involved in that side of it. I hired guys and let them do their job. Um, and um, I, I will say one great thing about Fran Kersey. I think it was the finest moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a story very few people know. And, and, I, and I'm going to compliment Fran and Jay Gruden. Um, right after we won the playoff game and we were going to begin preparing for Detroit in the championship in 91, I was uh, called by Fran, and he said, you've got to come down. We've got a real problem here. And um, one of our players had played the previous year for Detroit, and Mike Illich, uh, you know, who was a billionaire and all mm-hmm. that, and, and, a, and a fabulous guy and very good to me. But Mike had always paid the players a lot more than whatever the rules were. Um, uh, I never did that. I went by what the rules were and, you know, scared of doing otherwise. Um, and so uh, I was told that the player had told all of our players, this is what Detroit's getting for playing in the championship, and we need to get the same. And so I came down there, and basically the players decided they were going to go on strike, and they weren't going to play in the championship game. And um, I thought, you know, holy smoke, uh, this is insane. Mm-hmm. And um, Fran went and got all the plane tickets, we walked in there, and he said to all the players, um, you got a decision to make. We've been really good to you. Your owner's good to you. I'm sure he'll take good care of you. But you make a decision whether you're going to play or not. We're going out to the practice field, and if you're not there in 15 minutes, here are your plane tickets. We'll arrange for you to get home, and we'll
know, we'll find 20 other guys that want to play this Saturday night for a championship. We go out to the field. We wait 15 minutes, no players. 20 minutes, no players. 30 minutes, no players. I am really starting to freak out. And then all of a sudden I see Jay Gruden's head coming through the tunnel, all the players following Jay. A word was never said. We had our practice. We went on like uh, regular business. We won the championship in Detroit that Saturday night. Um, and I ended up taking all the players down to uh, the Bahamas after that, which may or may not have been within the rules, but um, it all worked out. But I, I thank Fran for uh, his leadership in that moment and, and Jay's as well. Did you ever at any point speak with Jay to ask him what was said in the locker room to convince the players to come out? Oh, I, I've kidded Jay a few times over the years about that. And, um, you know, we never got into any real details, but, um, you know, he always said I had it under control and, um, and um, you know, you didn't need to worry. We all wanted to go play for a championship and get a ring and, and um and uh, but but I respect Jay a lot and Fran a lot for you know their leadership there. Wow, that that that, that even adds more to the to the story of uh, the legend that is Jay Gruden in the in the AFL. That that's absolutely amazing. I'm, I'm thank you for sharing that. That's great. Um, as you said, you, you're coming from a where you did very you know your last year in Pittsburgh. I think you went three and five, now, not doing that well when it came to the the the, the fans in the stands, and then. 91, your first year as the new owner of, well, the owner of the, of the new Tampa Bay Storm, you go and you knock off one of the most legendary teams in AFL history at the time, the Detroit Drive, and you did it at their place. What was, what was, what was your thought going into the Arena Bowl before the game and then, and then afterwards? I mean, uh, how, how exciting or how nervous were you? Well, uh, first of all, let me start by saying that credit is due to Larry Kaharick. Mm-hmm. Larry put together a exceptional team. Larry found players from all over the place that had never played arena football before. We had a great coaching staff. I remember we had John Fonts was coaching that year. Um, and, um, I mean, we brought in some great players because Detroit really – you know, had dominated the league. They had experienced the guys. But I was confident because we played them. I mean, most people would forget this uh, except me. We played them in Detroit in the middle of the season, and we beat them 38-29 to in Detroit. And I think we kind of shocked them because, you know, people didn't beat them like that then. Um, but we had some great players, you know, uh, Jay and Stevie Thomas that came in and Darren Willis and Bo Wright and the list goes on and on. And, um, and actually a lot of those players or some of those players got injured after that first season in the mm-hmm. off season. Cause I know I went into 92 without four of our top guys, or I think we would have won frankly championships every year. But, um, but we were confident. Uh, it was a, it was a great game. If you go back and watch that game, it went back and forth. I don't think any team was ever ahead by more than a touchdown. And um, we got the ball back with 48 seconds. And uh, Jay threw a great pass to Stevie Thomas for the touchdown. 
they got the ball back. We still had to stop them after that. They had Schleister as their quarterback. Yep. But we just had a great team and a great defense, and and uh, we pulled it out, and it was really sweet. Uh, do you have any? Uh, how was your dealings with Coach Markham? Everybody knows that you know, God rest his soul, that you know he was a, a very unique gentleman. A lot of stories about Coach Markham, and anybody can see him on the you know on the old tapes these days, the game tapes that. He is one heck of a guy to just as a coach. Do you have any any? Did you deal with Coach Markham in any way? Well, I didn't. First of all, when we walked out of the arena after that game, mm-hmm. I ended up seeing Markham, and I didn't know Markham at all, other than that he was the coach. I had never probably even spoken a word to him. Okay, and I went up to him thinking I was like being being wise, and I said, Tim, you know, I just want you to know. This is really a good thing for the league that somebody finally beat Detroit. <laughs> and it'd be like walking up to Belichick and saying that. <laughs> and he kidded me about that for years. He said, um, I, that was as close as I ever came to freaking strangling somebody. I didn't want to hear any of that bullshit about it was good for the league. <laughs> so um, we became, you know, good friends. Um, really after, I mean, we had a real rivalry with them, certainly through 93. They mm-hmm. kind of disbanded in 94. Mm-hmm. But for those three years, it was us in Orlando in Detroit. And um, I remember when we went back there in 93 for that championship, Larry was convinced, um, Larry was convinced that Markham was in there bugging our practice and watching from somewhere in the arena. Um, and so Larry, he was certain that Markham had guys that had binoculars that were trying to spy and watch our practice. <laughs> so uh, both of them have, you know, sadly passed away, both Larry and Tim. So we'll never know about that. But um, it was a heated rivalry for those, you know, those uh, three years. Now, I'm looking right now at a picture of the ring that you designed for, for your championship team. Um, do, you, do you still wear that ring today? Oh, yeah, I still have that, and I have our 93 ring. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, I, I actually wear it once in a while because the rings today are all so large, it, it's oh, almost yeah. too gaudy to wear them. But that ring is a really great ring, and it you know, still is reasonable enough. You, you weren't too embarrassed wearing it. Ah, so glad to get out of that dang time travel machine. Where'd you go? I went back to the 80s to grab some of that good, good sports merch from my favorite defunct franchises. I spent my life savings on that machine. You bought a time travel machine to buy sports merchandise? Yeah, gladly. You know you could have gone to 503 Sports, right? The the website? Uh, yeah, no, I didn't think of that at all. Yeah, they sell all sorts of throwback sports merch from leagues like the World Football League, XFL, UFL, and the Arena Football League, several others. Uh, oh, shoot. Yeah, they sell hats, shirts, even custom jerseys from all sorts of vintage sports teams. Oh, man, I spent, like, a lot of money on that time travel machine. Well, look, listeners of AFL Rewind get 10% off their first order by using the promo code ARENAFAN at checkout. That might help you out. Yeah, it does. Go on over to 503-sports.com and, and get your merch today. Do you know anyone who wants to buy, like, a overpriced time travel machine? No, no, sorry, I, I don't. I do know, too, you know, as you said, you know, a couple of championships, you know, also another claim to fame, and it's a record that still stood even up to uh, up to uh, 2019. 
was your uh, single game attendance record back in 1993, where you drew a massive 28,745 people to the Suncoast Dome. I've seen and heard picture and uh, seen audio of that game itself. Um, was it? I, I couldn't find anything, but was it a, a certain promotion that you were running that day, or, or what was it in particular to, to just to draw so many people into watch arena football? Oh no, no, there was a big story behind that. Mm-hmm. When we went, when we played the opening game of that season, and we had we had lost in '92 to Orlando in the playoffs in Orlando, and and um, I mean that rivalry was even bigger than with Detroit. When we went down there in '93 to start the season, their Orlando fans had, you know, been throwing things at our players because the fans were right there on top of the bench. Right. I used to sit in the front row, and they knew who I was, and you know, they used to say things to me, and they'd say things to my girlfriend at the time. You know, it's ironic I became an owner in Orlando because <laughs> it was it was pretty bad back then. And so what happened was. One of our players, Tank Landry, um, he, he a, kind of a fight broke out, and he went up into the stands on crutches in the first row, and I saw this was going to be a bad scene because um, I happened to see a, a young kid down the row, and I went to grab Tank from behind and pin his arms because he couldn't do much on crutches. Right. And when I did that, an usher came down and literally cold-cocked me right in the face. Wow. <laughs> as though I was the guy starting it. And I went a little nuts, and he started to throw me out of the arena. And, I, and I'm going now ballistic, going, I'm the owner. I'm trying to break this up. They caught this all on TV as well. So I came back literally really pissed off. And um, we ended up losing the game as well. So I went on TV and kind of all of the you know the WWE mm-hmm. started doing all of our promotions about uh, this is what Orlando did they they spit on our players they called our women names um, all of this was true yeah. and um, that just was probably one of the best promotions we ever did it also <laughs> inflamed Orlando they sent over twenty buses apparently a thousand people to the game. Wow. And um, and then in, and then we ended up uh, losing, I think forty six forty five. Yes. In the game, which was just heartbreaking. I, I I walked out that night thinking really the world was going to end. And um, then we came back in the playoffs to beat them fifty five fifty two in Orlando in one of the best arena football games ever. So there was, you know, some poetic justice to it. Oh, for, yeah, for sure. I, I just looking at it, I mean, as you said, you, Tampa Bay, uh, you know, if you look at all the sports rivalries today, Bob, you, you have to admit, and I will put Tampa Bay and Orlando right there on top. With all the ones, you know, with you know, Alabama, Auburn, you know, Michigan, Notre Dame, et cetera, et cetera. It's right up there because it was always, no matter how good or how bad the teams were, they always came to play. They always came true. to play. So, yep. Um, yep. as you said, you, you won the you won the championship after you know knocked off Orlando in the semis, and you knocked them off at their place, by the way. And then yep. you went on to play Detroit again at Detroit for the for the championship in Arena Bowl Seven, uh, which you did win. You uh, you shellacked them. You beat them by twenty to win your second championship. As an owner, 
do all championships feel the same or did this one or was this one even was this one sweeter than the set than the first one no i can't say it was sweeter i mean the first one you know it was certainly my first and we were probably the underdogs um and uh you know, it was fantastic. That second one, I can't say that we expected to, to thump them like we did because, I mean, you couldn't help but just have enormous respect for them. Um, and they were the defending champions. Mm-hmm. They had they had, they had, had beaten up Orlando, who had beaten us the year before, pretty good when they won their championship also in Orlando. So, you know, you knew they were really, really good. Um but we had a great team that year. I mean, I look back on that team, and there were some players like Andre Bowden, um, you know, that went on to play a little bit in the NFL, Keith Browner. Um, uh, uh, you know, we just had a great, great football uh, team. I'll never forget, too, in, in the locker room before the game, Yeah, we we had brought up, a young girl named Amanda Bernstein. She was nine at the time. She was a great anthem singer. And um, she had sung for us during the season, and our coach, being superstitious, wanted to take her up there. And so I said, great. So she came with, with her director, who would later become my wife. Right. And in the locker room before the game, Larry got up and he gave this speech, and he said something to the effect of, you know, she's there singing. She's about three feet high and nine years old with little curly blonde hair and adorable. And he pointed all those players and said, you know, you are this little girl's hero, and don't you let her down today. And went on for about a minute. And it was really one of the greatest sincere speeches I ever heard. And we just went out there and we just kicked their asses. So it was um, it was in its own way just a, just a great, great, uh, you know, game is equally as good as the first. And you can say you were you're actually when it came to the Arena Bowl, you were two and zero versus Coach Markham. So, <laughs> uh, well, not not only not only two and zero, but we had beaten him in in the ninety one season. Yep. So w- I always kidded Markham after that through the entire four years, um, we were three and zero, and he never beat us ever. <laughs> and that, believe me, that that would send him through the roof. <laughs> um, 94, uh, we made a little bit of a change for you. Obviously, the team itself didn't do as well as it has it had for the past three years. You're at, you know, at seven and five. You get knocked off by, um, by the Massachusetts Marauders, who happen to be the former Detroit Drive. Um, what, uh, and, and then this year, it, it comes about that you are going, you're, there are talks that you are thinking of selling the team what um what made you decide to to put the the tampa bay storm up up for sale well unfortunately that year going from 93 to 94 we lost very similar to 91 but we lost i remember four of our best players andre bond went to the nfl mm-hmm. keith browner didn't play again i'd have to think it through but we lost four critical players to the team and I don't know, we just started out bad. We never really recovered. Um, and yeah, it was disappointing because it was the first season we really, really weren't in contention um, ever. Um, but I decided to sell the team because while I had loved this, 
each year I was losing more and more money. Right. I mean, I think the first year I lost a hundred grand. The second year I lost two hundred. And first it was thirty years ago, and I was a young kid, and I didn't have that kind of money to lose. And that last season, I remember losing a lot of money, and um, I just, um, you know, I just didn't have the ability or the desire to to keep doing that. I wasn't, you know, a billionaire like Mike Illich. Right. Um, so the time had come. I just, and it prevented me from ever really working because all my time was spent really working with the team. Right. So it had been a great run, but it was it was time to it was time to sell the team. Now, now, out of curiosity, you know, some people may ask, well, you've been, you were drawing, I think it was close to 20000 at Suncoast Dome. Um, what was, the, what was the, the, the cause for losing all that money? Was it the, because I think the, the salaries increased. I think the, at one point, I think the league decided to do away with a, a, a cap and add in a new luxury tax, so to speak. But what, what in particular was the, the, that you remember was the, reason for losing so much money all the you know increasingly all those years um well first of all it was always misleading the crowds let's start there because mm-hmm. um even though and and we didn't we didn't have 20,000 every game right. um you know we were not like Detroit that would give away all the tickets for free right. but we probably did have a couple thousand tickets a game that were <clears throat> promotional tickets, or I used to give away tickets with the schools. I used to give away tickets at the radio stations, all of that stuff. And then we used to have in the upper deck really cheap seats, like right. five dollars. Um, and the whole key, and what I learned, and and probably the big mistake I made, I'm not sure they would have made a big difference, was um, it's all about you know selling season tickets, right. and so. I probably should never have opened the upper deck. I should have left it at like 14,000 people, created much more demand, which would have created selling more season tickets, which would have meant I would have spent less money on advertising because to compare it to Orlando, which only had an arena back then of like 13,800 people, Mm -hmm. they would generate about $100,000 more revenue per game with less people than I would generate with whatever my numbers were. Okay. And that was all a supply and demand situation. And um, I can't say for certain that would have happened, but I never had more than 3,800 season tickets, and Orlando had, you know, close to 10,000 season tickets. And so, um, and I always treated people well. I always paid our coaches well. I, I, you know, my hero... Then and even to this day was Eddie DeBartolo. Mm-hmm. Um, I just admired what he always did, taking care of his players. And um, you know, I tried within my own limitations to spare no expense to treating him well and taking good care of him and getting good apartments and feeding him well and and uh, you know, taking him out after the games and having fun. So. Um, and you know we had zero TV money, so the only yeah. money we ever could count on was our our gate receipts and whatever sponsorship money you could bring in. And um, so that's. Um, but by the way, no one else ever made any money either. The only right. the real question just was, you know, how little can you lose? And um, then of course years later, when all the NFL teams came in, or some of them came in, 
you know, it, it got ratcheted up from losing hundreds of thousands to right. literally millions. Yes. So, yeah. Um, did, did you find that the, that also one of the uh, reasons that may have been that you were losing money was the the rent itself for the Suncoast Dome? Because say, for instance, if you had played at when, well, it wasn't didn't exist then, but say if you had played at uh, at Amelie Arena at that time, do you think you would have lost less? No, that that had nothing to do with it because I had a great deal with the arena. I I paid them more money, but I received the majority of um, all the concessions as well. Oh wow! Okay, because because I I realized, you know, if I'm going to put in all these people, I should make something from the beer sales and everything else. So, no, I had a I had a great deal, and the people at the arena were fantastic to work with. And way back then, I worked with people in the city like Rick Dodge. And, um, no, they were, well, as I think about this, I can tell you one of the big problems mm-hmm. we had, um, now I'm remembering all this, was with workers' compensation. Mm-hmm. Because we started in my first year and our workers' comp was 30000 and our last year they wanted to charge us 300000 Whoa. Which we could never have afforded and thankfully we found out we could self-insure in the state of florida but other clubs in states couldn't do that in places like california and others mm-hmm. and workers comp was probably business-wise the single biggest problem uh... for twenty years that the league that the league faced um, and you know what would happen is a lot of players because this was a job where they were making you know five hundred dollars a week for for eight or ten weeks they go home and they'd collect workers comp benefits and when the insurance companies after paying that out for a year or two then they raised our premiums as i said by by tenfold yeah and and that's that i think that's what you're saying makes sense because you know with the story where you know the albany firebirds they their offices and and um, where they practiced was in the state of Vermont, about about you know forty five minutes away. So they technically weren't in Albany either, so that they could save money on workmen's comp. So I, I can I can completely understand what you're saying. Um, what um, we know the you know the name Woody Kern. I mean, he's very well known in the Arena Football League. Um, was the owner originally of the of the Fort Worth Cavalry. Um, how did you two get together and, and tar- start talking about uh, him purchasing the uh, the storm? Well, Woody was a really good guy, and you know, Woody was a was a was a, a Texans Texan. You know, just a just a good old boy. You know, it's, it, he's like to be remembered. I think. Um, I th- I think I just went up to him at halftime of a game in '93, and. For some reason, I don't remember why he had a connection. I think to Tampa. I, I, I can't remember why I thought that. Um, maybe it was nursing homes he owned here. I, I could be wrong, but I just he seemed really into it. And I said, Woody, I'm going to likely you know sell the team um, at the end of the year. And if you'd be interested, then. Um, you know, let me know. I, I don't think. I, now I do remember it wasn't going well for him in Fort Worth, mm-hmm. and so I said, you know, this might make some sense if you want to continue. You know, we've got the premier franchise and a good good situation, lots of support, and um, and that's how that's how it all started. Okay. Um, 
it was reported in the newspaper after before and after the sale itself that you got anywhere between five hundred to eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the team. Is that anywhere near the ballpark, or was it was it more than that? Yeah, no, I I, I want to say I got either five hundred or five fifty. I can't remember now, but it was. And and Woody was a tough negotiator, um, but yeah, I, I got either five or five fifty. Okay. So so you sold the team as of September first in ninety four. So now you're the you're the former owner of the Tampa Bay Storm. After you sold the team to Woody, you're not did you were you involved with the league in any way? Because obviously you're not an executive, you're not on any of the boards. What 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 did you do before that, leading up to your time before you you joined uh, the ownership group of the Preds in, in two thousand three? Well, one of the things that kind of led to also selling was. It was right about that time. I remember the league starting to talk about unionizing, mm-hmm. and I thought, I thought this is insane. I mean, everybody sitting around this table is losing money, and if you unionize, we're all going to lose a lot more. And I remember thinking, in the end of '94, you know, this is a good time to exit. So I did. I sat out, you know, for almost ten years. You know, I I continued to to enjoy the game, watch mm-hmm. the game. Um, and at the time, I was I was doing a lot of lending money to businesses. And um, and at some point, I kind of realized the Predators, which I you know obviously knew well from competing against them, yeah. they, they were in some trouble. I made a loan to them of like half a million dollars back then. And, um, and I can't remember all the details now. That led at some point to... To getting involved and putting some money in on a um, equity basis as well, okay. and um, and I think back then I, I for about a year I really worked with Brett Bushy, and um, I really I said Brett let me they owed a lot of money and I said let me handle and work out all the problems and you focus on the sales and marketing and so we did that for the better part of the year and kind of got the team in better shape and uh, Jay was back then by then also and Mm -hmm. so you know it was a good experience and i wasn't you know brett ran it day to day i i i was involved passively and then actually much less over the years and it was just really then just an investment how how was brett as an owner because you know people fans from across the league you know predator fans will remember brett in a certain way and obviously the fans in los angeles will remember brett in a certain way because when he when he was part of the ownership group for the kiss how how was brett as, as an owner well i liked brett um you know we had some differences over the years i, I think brett was um you know the only thing i'd say critical was he was too much of a salesman sometime and you know, there were a couple business issues over the years that, that we tangled over. Um, but, you know, he was a really good operator, um, probably the best in the league. He really cared. Um, you know, I liked Brett, um, and um, I wasn't involved in anything when they went to L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they caught up to him a little bit, you know, not realizing that Orlando, you know, was entirely different than L.A. But, right. um, but you know, I like Brett, and, and um, you know, we, we got along well, you know, in, in spite of wrestling over a few things over the years. 
Now, you talk about wrestling over here, and I happened to pop up on something. I at least had to ask you about this. Supposedly, in, in 2004, you were fined $10,000 by the league for a uh, blow-up doll day night at the arena. Is is that true? Um, it, it is, and I don't remember much about it. Um, it kind of went out of control, and... Um, uh, it was just, you know, I was involved working with Brett and doing a lot of promotions back then. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know kind of how it even began. There, there was nothing whatsoever that was intended to be um, sexually orientated about it. I, I think what happened was there was one person that used to, like, pass around an inflatable in the upper deck. Okay. And, um, and... You know, as people would use like beach balls and do right. things like that, yeah. and we said something like, "Okay, let's um, let's have an inflatable night." And we thought, "All right, this will be good. We'll have you know a hundred beach balls, and we'll have all kinds of other things, and it'll be kind of a fun, zany promotion." And that was kind of the intention. Never did it cross our minds, um, never, that people would bring you know. Uh, uh, I don't even know that I really knew they existed like this. <laughs> they they bring female or sexually orientated blow-ups. Mm-hmm. As I saw the first one, um, I, I literally, um, you know, just shivers went through my body <laughs> thinking, oh, my God, this is not what we intended. Totally embarrassed, um, you know, apologized afterwards never intended anything like that um you know but um but that's the story as best i can remember yeah. now it was obviously at the time too you were dealing with commissioner baker and d- did the do you think the league went light on you guys when it came to the fine that you remember or because i know commissioner baker as i said he's he's a hulking gentleman himself and he's 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 just as much as a promoter as anybody else but do you remember any the type of admonishment besides the fine that the league gave to you guys um you know not much david baker was a was a really good guy and mm-hmm. i like david and and he did he did call me out of the meeting and you know admonish me and and uh you know all i could say was yeah you know i was wrong sorry <laughs> didn't intend this my bad won't happen again <laughs> uh uh took my medicine you know appropriately and 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 that was that. But um, but uh, you know, it, it it wasn't my finest moment in no. marketing history. I'll say that. How is that you got more flack for that thing, uh, that episode when you had there was a report too that you had these very unique and original uh, billboards going up around the city. Um, I think one was uh, it was a, a woman in a football jersey. I can't I can't remember what the tagline is that you used, but how did you get more? How come I guess because you would think that the the you know that the advertisements are more prevalent and they're more out in the community. How do you, why do you think that you got more flack for the, the for the doll incident than the uh, than the advertising? Well, I, I don't think we did. I mean. Um you know, it may be reported that way, but it really, it wasn't a big thing. I'm sure there was an article in the paper the day after, and, right. and you know, it obviously came to the attention of the league, but um, no, I don't remember it as being, you know, 
anything other than a you know other than that right um you know as for other marketing from the very beginning we did all kinds of you know we had people getting married at halftime and mm-hmm. we had giveaways and diamond nights and and um <clears throat> you know just did uh a lot of fun stuff that you know the crowd got into i remember we had a hawaiian night and everybody came dressed in that so um you know, so we did lots of promotions, and and they were good, and they were fun, and and uh, I think the people are in Tampa, right. in particular. You know, I, I'll occasionally run into people sometimes that'll, you know, thirty years later, you know, talk about that. And um, I know one of our big fans back then was George Steinbrenner, and um, you know, may he rest in peace. Uh, he was my hero, and and when I first came down here. And um, my dad had been friends with George, and I went to see him, and he was our first season ticket holder. And he he was so gracious to me and told me, you know, Tampa Bay was his town, and mm-hmm. anywhere I needed to go, uh, if I didn't get a warm welcome, just to call him. And and uh, he loved he loved all the promotions. I used to talk nice. to him way back then about that, and and he was a big fan of them. That's cool. What um. How much longer were you were you with the Preds, and, and what finally, I guess, I don't want to say soured you on the ownership group, or what, what finally said to you, what made you say, okay, enough is enough? Well, nothing soured me. Um, you know, I got involved, and then with each year, my involvement probably got a little bit less because, mm-hmm. you know, the team was, you know, the team was doing what it needed to do, and you know, Brett was doing a good job running the team. Right. We never made any money. That was the problem. You could you could do everything right, and yet uh, the question just was, you know, how much are you going to lose? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, over those years, really, Ron House in particular got more active and really kind of stepped in and became the majority owner. Okay. Um, and then what happened was when the league started to to because of the 2008 you know kind of financial crisis yes teams started dropping out and it got to a point where there was like only four or five teams left and um and somehow because brett had gone off to la i had to speak for orlando and Mm -hmm. and i finally had to say look we can't run a league with five teams and i remember markham got really ticked off at me and called me afterwards and jumped all over me and and I said, look, Tim, you know, the reality is what it is. It's not my fault, you know. Um, you know, you didn't call up and jump on John Bon Jovi's case. You know, <laughs> we, can't, we, we can't run a league with five teams and four teams. And then, of course, the league, you know, you know sat out and, and then ultimately went bankrupt. And then we started it all up again, you know, with the Predators in, in like 2010 again. Mm-hmm. So you were so you you followed through with the you were with the Predators as as a in a minority um, situation the entire time all the way through. You mean from like two thousand three to two thousand eight? Yeah. Yes, I I, I was involved um, different percentages, but I I think I owned as much in the very beginning as like twenty five percent, and then I think that went down when Ron got involved and bought mm-hmm. up most people's stakes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember what it was in the very end, but, um, but yeah, I was involved 
during that entire time. Okay. And your last your last year to owning uh, a part of an arena football team was in 08, or did you to take part in Jerry Kurz's version uh, in 2010 beyond? I wasn't involved in the team. Um, I was not involved in the team. I did participate, you know, with 10 or 15 others in buying the league out of bankruptcy. Okay. Um, but I had a very small piece of that, and um, and um, that was really just more thinking it was going to, you know, be a be a good business investment. Right. Okay. So you're a part of the actual. Uh, I guess you were part because of you. Uh, you you were also you were part of the relaunch itself in 2010. Okay. okay. I, I was part of it, and we just literally finally got our we we got our money back, and really nothing more. So it was pretty much a non-event, and then we just finally got a few thousand dollars just a few months ago to to bring complete closure to it. So I guess for the first time now after. You know, 30 years, mm-hmm. with the exception of my little break, um, you know, I'm completely out, you know, as everybody else is now. Too. Right. Um, Rob, what are you going to remember the most about the Arena Football League? If it never comes back, what, what, are you yourself as, an, as a former owner, what are you going to remember the most about the AFL? Well, you know, how great the game was. I, I, I always said to people, um, if you if you've never seen a football game, you probably watch an outdoor game and watch an indoor game, you probably fall more in love with the indoor game if you didn't know about the tradition of Notre Dame or, you know, the National Football League because the game itself just was really that good and that entertaining. It it, it was always disappointing to me that we didn't get this to a higher level, particularly when we had our four years of being on NBC. Mm-hmm. I always disagreed with a lot of people in the league. We should have gone to the NFL and NBA and NHL and all those guys, and we should have just really given them franchises along with the commitment to market the teams and stay in it for a period of years and use their infrastructure and their season ticket bases and their expertise and we should have grown the league to something much bigger and better, and we should have developed it over in Europe and other places, because it's just that great, really, of a game. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, you know, like anything, the relationships, um, I don't really see or stay in contact with the players, but um, we had a great group of guys, um, you know, great group of coaches, I mean, Larry Kahir, he was just, he was a great coach. And, um, and I was sad when he passed away from cancer. Um, you know, I was sad to hear about Coach Markham. Mm-hmm. Uh, sad about Woody yep. as well. You know, um, there's just a lot of, a lot of good people and a lot of great memories. Um, I want to thank you, obviously, for being able to tell the stories you have. I, I'm, I am impressed when, Somebody who's been in with the league for such a long time is is to be able to be as open and transparent and to tell the stories that you did because I I'm sure myself and other fans and, and especially Tampa Bay fans may have heard some stories today that they had never heard before. Um, I appreciate your time. You will always be a part of the Arena Football family, uh, being that you, with the amount of time that you spent with the league, and uh, I really appreciated uh, yeah, giving me your time today. 
Well, thanks so much, and and I wish everybody everybody the best. It, it's it's been a great experience for the past thirty years. Thanks very much, and everybody be well. We want to thank Bob Grease for coming on the podcast this episode. Uh, it gives us a pretty good insight on the early days of being an owner uh, within the Arena Football League. If you happen to miss any of the previous episodes, uh, there are a couple places where you can catch them and get caught up. Uh, you can listen to them over on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and then our audio version over on YouTube. If you have any uh, questions or suggestions on who you'd like to hear in future episodes, uh, you can reach us at aflrewind at arenafan.com. So thanks for joining us for this episode. We'll be back for the next episode very shortly uh, with another great inside look at the people, players, and executives that you knew from the Arena Football League. So for everybody here at AFL Rewind, I'm Tim Capper. Watch the rebound off the net. Bye-bye.